Simple Beep, episode 39, the iMac G3. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast about the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we have a special guest with us for this episode. Welcome back to the show, Stephen Hackett. Hey, guys. How are y'all? Good. And the reason that we have you here is because you did a ridiculous thing, (laughs) 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 which is that you you started out from Pallet Town with nothing but a level one Sage iMac, and you have now (laughs) conquered the entire universe and the Elite Four and have completed your Pokedex of iMacs, all 13 of them. And so you have a lot of primary experience with the iMac G3 recently, and we figured it would be good to to talk with you about that and uh, go through kind of the whole history of the G3 iMac. Yeah, most of my firsthand experience is being really sore after moving them around because I had to move them from my house. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of them and it's, um, it's oh, we'll get into it, but it's kind of a, a crazy history. Like it's not as, it's not as clean cut as I thought it was when I decided like a month and a half ago that I should find them all. Yeah, I think one of the first things that you posted was an image from Wikipedia that has just like little thumbnails of these are the 13 flavors of iMac. And it makes it seem really small and contained and straightforward. It's none of those things. (laughs) None of those things. Um, Definitely not small. I mean, did you eventually just have them start shipping them to the office instead of home? No, I mean, I would have. There's some logistics with that with this building, but... um... We were talking before, like my UPS and FedEx guy, like definitely deserve a Christmas present for me this year. Um, Because the way the early ones are like 40 something pounds, like 41 pounds a piece. And by the time you pack them, a lot of them came with keyboards and mice. And someone sent me, I think with my blueberry came with a bunch of like old, like iMac for dummies books. It just like all it's doing, like. Is just weighing the box down. And you had a couple that came in original packaging too, right? I just had one. The tangerine came in an original box, which was super cool. I'd never seen an original box. I'd, I, I had never seen the like the original documentation and the booklets that came with it. So that was really special. And um, that one is probably my favorite uh, color. And so it was it was fun to see it like as it came from the factory. Yeah, we've we've talked about the iMac G3 a little bit before on the show. And one of the things I know that we've pointed out was one of the original videos was the simplicity shootout video that was supposed to show how easy it was to set up the iMac and it pits, you know, a, a regular businessman type with against a kid and his dog. And there's one scene in that video where there's just kind of a, a very graceful cut where the iMac goes from in the box to out of the box because I'm guessing that the computer more or less outweighed the kid. <laughs> it would have crushed that child. I have kids about that age. They would be dead. <laughs> so before we get into the overall history of the iMac, you know, the iMac G3 is the first iMac. And so we're going to be covering the first bit of the arc of the iMac's history. But of course, it's an arc that is continuing to this day. I figured that we should just maybe mention quickly where each of us sort of came into having an experience with the iMac. And I guess I'll start. And we kind of missed the iMac G3 boat in some ways. So I never lived in a home that had an iMac G3 in it uh, because we got a G3 desktop beige. Um, I think it was a 233 megahertz G3 desktop it was not like a pizza box configuration. It was much thicker than that. Yeah. 
um just a very standard beige six inch thick desktop and i remember that you know this was what computers including macs looked like just prior to the imac so it was in 1997 that that machine came out and uh my family got that our first mac was uh like the very first power mac 6100 and then this was the first you know entry level of the new generation with the g3 processors and so it was a big upgrade for us we were very happy with that computer it lasted years and years but it was the kind of thing where you got like kind of a special computer desk and it would have compartments and stuff and many of them had like the tower compartment down on the side and we didn't have a tower so you stacked like cds and stuff in there but the way that we had that machine set up was that the cpu unit you know, the entire computer basically except the monitor and the peripherals was stashed at like foot level it was on the lowest shelf of the desk because you know every once in a while you had to pop a disc in there or something but you didn't really want to see it because it was nothing to look at so we kind of missed out on the very beginning of the iMac era. Uh, the first iMac that was in my family at all was an Indigo iMac that my grandpa got uh, to replace his aging, dying Performa, which never properly worked right. Uh, I think I've mentioned that on the show before, too. He got like a bum monitor that would turn funny colors and you had to literally smack it to get it to work right. Uh, so that was the first iMac that I used on any sort of regular basis was kind of a couple years into the iMac's life. My family had a, uh, fourth revision, revision D blueberry, uh, tray loading CD iMac. And, uh, it got to stay in my bedroom because I got all A's in middle school <laughs> and, um, we were upgrading from a Performa 6100 series. So I think like the same like jump that you had ed from like you had a power mac 6100 yeah to a g3 yeah and so we basically went from the same machine to a g3 basically like two processor architectures yeah and uh and so it it like was almost my primary machine except it was also the like the family internet machine so people would come into my bedroom to like check email and stuff uh but it was it was like the coolest thing. I remember loving every bit about it. Um and so yeah, I think we'll we'll get into the certain details that we we loved about it uh later in the show. Yeah, and that was actually basically my first experience with the iMac was using your iMac, Brian. <laughs> um <laughs> playing like Rainbow Six and stuff. Yeah, and and I remember that just that was my first experience with the hardware. This hardware that looked like no other computer that I had ever used even though I had been using Macs for years and years. Um and we'll get into things like the Puck Mouse and all of that. That but that was the first time that I laid hands on it. And my memory of that was that I thought that it was an original Bondi Blue, as we have learned how to pronounce that particular bit of Australian geography. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was one of the original ones, uh, just thinking back on it. But now you've gone back and sort of pieced it all together and realized it was the blueberry, which is slightly different. Slightly, yeah. But you said that, you know it's tied to to middle school. I mean, this you know puts it in his historical context for us, and. Uh, one thing that this is a little bit of follow-up too, I guess. Uh, Stephen, you had written about this uh, a little while ago and actually did an interview over on Connected about the Apple One 
that the Ford Museum here in Michigan has. Yeah. Um, and I unfortunately didn't make it over to Dearborn to actually go and see it in person. I had seen some photos that were posted online and it looked kind of like, well, here's a circuit board in a case. Um, and then uh, a little bit later, like right before it went back into storage, uh, a listener and uh, fellow Ann Arborite, Marina Eppelman, posted some photos. She she went down to the Ford Museum and looked through the exhibits there. And it looks like they really have some awesome technology curation exhibits. And uh, she posted one photo that we'll link in the show notes that had a case. Uh, it was like a glass display case. And it was like the perfect microcosm of my seventh grade, eighth grade year. It was like, that is 1998 because it had an original iMac in it. It had uh, Pokemon red and blue cartridges in it. It had a pair of rollerblades. Like it was spot on. <laughs> they just took my entire middle school experience and put it behind glass. If for me, it was it was middle school as well. We had you know, a computer lab that had some iMacs in it. I couldn't tell you which ones they were, you know, we were only in there every couple of weeks. But in high school, so this would have been in 2001, 2002, the high school newspaper got some hand-me-down iMac G3s. And to that point, we were using all beige Macs, including my beloved, but often uh, maligned Power Mac G3 all-in-one. And we got a couple of uh, tray-loading iMacs of, you know, various colors. And I I just remember, you know, kind of like you're talking about the, the G3 desktop, like, this was something obviously so very different and uh, it really, you know, that, that machine, like I think I spoke about last time we were on, I was on here, like that high school newspaper experience is what brought me to the Mac. And like the iMac is at the heart of that story. Like as much as the all in one was sort of the first machine I used, the iMac was the first machine that sort of spoke to me on a different level. And um, I think that's true for a lot of people, like definitely people our, our age, right. We were in our formative kind of, years, you know, becoming, you know, older students, having more independence, having a computer in our room, like the, the iMac was right in there for a lot of us. And, um, I think that's one reason that, that I find them so special is that you know, they come from that, that era when I first met the Mac. Yeah. I knew that you would bring up the Molar Mac. And I think that that's actually kind of a good transition into, uh, getting into the iMac launch because the fact of the matter is that being an all-in-one Mac was not the special thing about the iMac. Obviously, the the first Macintosh was an all-in-one machine, and that was maybe as revolutionary then as the iMac was, you know, some 13 years later. But this was a design that Apple had considered and tried and worked on for a long time, and the the Molar Mac, the the G3 all-in-one is that one that just kind of lands smack in the uncanny valley of we had a really great idea here and we kind of had a vision and we just didn't quite get to it. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. So let's go to uh, the launch of the original iMac and uh, we'll take a tour through the various revisions of the iMac G3, which is a history that spans about, it's, it's actually relatively short, maybe three, four years, but... This was a period that you know, the reason that this is so fascinating is that it was the period where Apple came back. This was the machine that saved Apple. And Stephen, you've said that that's the reason why you feel so passionate about the iMac G3 and why you want to write about it and talk about it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Jobs comes in right for the next acquisition. The first thing they do very famously is they can a lot of products. And then he lays out the grid of four. We're going to have desktop and notebook, professional consumer, and he starts filling in those blocks. And for a long time, the um, the notebook consumer was just empty because the iBook didn't come along till much later. But it's, um, you know, it is a, a really clear message and and he actually kind of leads off with that in this keynote where the iMac gets introduced. Um, but it's, it's a very, unlike today where I think the lines are a little bit grayer, it was very clear in 1998. If you are this kind of user, this is the kind of computer we would like you to buy. And uh, I think it really fit that peg really well. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because the kind of computer that my family was buying was we were before the the grid of two we've talked about this also was the uh the line of three which was the pro go woe uh so that was before there was the consumer laptop you just had the pro desktops the portables and the consumer desktops which were going to be filled in with with the iMacs and before that my my family, we never felt like we fit in the the consumer desktop space, especially as it was in the beige Mac consumer desktop space. It was the Performa, which was usually some other machine that was then kind of watered down to get part costs down and then backfilled with a binder full of CDs that was supposed to make it family friendly. And that didn't really make a compelling consumer offering. And so what we wound up going for on those first two Macs that we had was like, okay, we need a pro Mac, but they're expensive. So we need to buy like the bottom of the line pro Mac. So it makes sense that that market was there to kind of shift down to have not, not go all the way to the bottom of the line consumer, but to go into a luxury consumer product, which was the kind of thing that Apple needed to sell and was what they got in the original iMac. Yeah, watching back this keynote, the introduction of the original iMac, a lot of time is dedicated to the G3 processor and how much better and faster it is than the Pentium 2 at the time. And so it's kind of like one of the big bombshells of the iMac announcement is like, yes, we've established that we're doing this consumer versus professional grid. And uh, our consumer machine, that's right, it has the same processor as our professional machine. And so it really is like, you know, in appearances, it's certainly more of a mainstream uh, appeasing design, but like it, it was, I think the first one that like definitely had the power where maybe the power specs a little bit blurred the lines between consumer and professional. And that's a trick that Apple has pulled several times since. I mean, think about recently, just in the past few years, they're like, oh yeah. And there's a new iPad mini and it like outspecs all but one of the other iPads. Or the iPhone SE has the same processor as the flagship 6S Plus, essentially. So let's get into the announcement. And of course, the big reveal with the iMac was going to be its design because it was something that nobody had ever seen before. But it also had some callback features. So it had an, an introductory video, which after the big reveal was actually played on the iMac screen, just like the original Macintosh introduction. And it even called back to the the like final graphic where on the original Macintosh, it had that script, hello. And on the iMac, it said that same script, hello. And then in Apple's corporate Garamond font at the time, 
uh, again in parentheses underneath it. Lots of tiebacks to the original Macintosh, of course, because this was the first, well, sorry, Stephen, first kind of serious <laughs> all-in-one Macintosh uh, that, that Apple had put out in a while. There were some of the, geez, I don't even know which line they came under. There were performas or maybe like quadra avs that were kind of all in one late model lcs performas yeah some some of the lcs when they went past lc one two and three into giving them like four digit model numbers like like everything else um and of course this product that they were unveiling also didn't have some kind of awful model number it had just its name imac but uh that almost didn't come to pass, as it turns out. This was revealed a, a little bit later on um, with a fantastic article that we'll link in the show notes. Uh, this is over on uh, Fast Company called Steve Jobs Almost Named the iMac the Mac Man Until This Guy Stopped Him. And this article was just posted in uh, in 2012. So some some good history there. And this was something, a little bit of the IMAX prehistory that I had more or less forgotten. Um, and the article is full of, of great quotes and behind-the-scenes stories from that. Um, you know, the people who are charged with marketing this computer. And uh, MacMan was apparently an invention of Phil Schiller. And uh, Steve Jobs loved it and said, this is the name unless you come up with something better. And they're like, boy, we can come up with something better. <laughs> and uh, then they came up with all kinds of different ideas. And he's like, no, I, I, I think it should be MacMan. <laughs> and the the uh, the people who were trying to come up with better brandings, <laughs> that you know, the name gave them hives. <laughs> um, and yeah, just so many things wrong with that. Um, I, I I just immediately think of Pac Man. I can see like. Uh, little side views of the the colorful crts just going oh yeah so so they ended up sticking an eye in front of it and what's interesting one of maybe the most interesting slides in this keynote to me is when job says this is what the i stands for and you know instead of the one thing internet which is kind of the one that has survived it's internet individual instruct inform and inspire it's like it's not as tight marketing wise as Apple would become later. Um, but of course now the I, you know, it doesn't stand for internet phone or internet pad, right? It's just, it has become just a thing. The I just become its own entity. But, um, you know, clearly those were words and those were ideas that Apple wanted to infuse this product with that. Of course, yes, it's really easy to get on the internet. They had the very famous, uh, there's no step three, there's no step three ad. Step three is Earthlink. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, but, you know, the putting in a classroom, giving people the tools to create. Um, the individual one, I think, comes true later when they sort of add the additional colors. But it's it's just a very interesting little, and it kind of sticks out to me now, you know, so many years later, that instead of just one message, there's kind of five little messages wrapped up in that one letter. Yeah, and it's funny that you know, it, it has lost... Uh, well, it's gained a different sort of meaning. I mean, we think of it as like, oh, it's a prefix that goes on Mac, just this little letter I, but um, I'll put in my 
little obligatory linguistics lesson here <laughs> is that you know if if you think about the the morphemes the pieces of words like the definition for that in linguistics is you've got a unit of sound that matches up with a unit of meaning and so at the original launch of the iMac the meaning was kind of undefined what does that i stand for well it stands for kind of five different things at once so it hasn't really hasn't really come to be a true prefix something that that means something piece of a word but now that it's applied to so many other things that the iPod now the iPad iCloud it's a general kind general purpose prefix and what is that meaning of just the i it means this belongs to apple another thing that's interesting about this this sort of serves as a template for later product announcements by Steve and so he talks a little bit about uh, kind of what other consumer products are out there. He makes fun of all the PCs with all their cables and beige boxes, even though that's what Apple was selling to their professional customers. We'll just put that aside. And, you know, he says, you know, they're slow. They have small displays. And he says, with the iMac, we're going to solve all of that stuff. We're going to have a nice big display. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be well-designed. And uh, it's going to be easy to set up and easy to use. And, and I think what's important, and he doesn't say it, but it's 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 woven all throughout his messaging is that this computer is not threatening i mean sort of it falling on you which all computers were heavy then the imac is not doesn't look like something that could hurt you or that you could mess up by using it right it's not it's not confrontational it's something that looks very friendly that ties back to the original mac that it looks like it looks like your buddy on the desk right it doesn't look like some big scary angular machine and he he kind of goes into all of that and then, uh, and then we get to the uh, the big reveal. And really, like, I don't know what what more we can say about the reveal other than like everyone's minds were blown. It's uh, all the different things that have been said about the original iMac over the years. Like, I think a, a common one is it's it's the computer from the Jetsons, or uh, like a, a fish tank or a candy jelly beans jelly bellies. Uh, it just like it it redefined what a computer could look like in, in, in all the ways that were just said here too. Like it's friendly, it's approachable, it's personable. It it reflects personality. It's not a, a faceless hunk of plastic and silicon. Well, and right in the announcement, Steve Jobs said the degree to which he thought that it was different than what anyone had seen before. And he says, it looks like it's from another planet and a good planet. A planet with better designers. And I think that quote is particularly funny, especially because now, as observers of Apple, since then, we know exactly who's behind that design team. And of course, it's Johnny Ive. And uh, I think it's particularly funny, almost a little bit creepy, that uh, <laughs> he's had such a hand in the new Apple Campus 2, affectionately known as the spaceship which may maybe he'll be able to uh, go back to his home planet sometime soon. The white room, the white planet. Yeah. And and uh, my favorite quote is... Um, the back of this thing looks better than the front of the other guys, by the way. This keynote has just like lots of little like Steve outbursts about how much he loves the design. But that, that quote is so true. I mean, I every day at work, I, I walk past the desk of uh, one of my coworkers and she has uh, an iPhone 6S Plus. And it is for most of the day plugged in to a lightning cable via USB directly into the front of the Windows tower that sits on her desk. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is two completely separate worlds. And yeah, 
the front of that computer that's sitting and doing productive work in an office in 2016 looks way worse than the side or back of the original iMac. Yeah, and uh, I think that's something that's continued to iMacs and really all of Apple's machines today. Uh, Like I see at receptionist desks, almost everywhere I go, it's an iMac or an Apple like cinema display or Thunderbolt display because it's like a clean block of aluminum. And sure, it has a big logo on it, but like if that's what the receptionist is using, the the person coming into the office is going to see the back of that machine. So like it actually makes sense to prioritize that area of design for applications like that. So now let's get into actually what the iMac offered in terms of hardware. We mentioned the fact that it was bringing a slightly more professional uh, type of specification with the G3 processor down to the consumer level. And Stephen has very generously provided us with (laughs) extremely detailed specifications for all of the revisions of, of iMacs. And so let's start with with Rev-A, which uh, was released in August of 1998. Yeah, it was uh, running macOS 8.1, which is also another way to kind of place it in the Apple timeline. Yeah, it's like a long time ago. Uh, It had a a graphics card, which was a big step up, uh, certainly for my family. That's why my early memories of it were playing games like Rainbow Six, which had four megs of uh, VRAM. You can't even draw one triangle with that today. <laughs> I know. Doesn't run Crisis though. Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and a 256 megabyte uh, RAM ceiling and a four gigabyte hard drive. You know, it, it seems now. I mean, obviously, time has moved on, and these specs seem rather funny now, right? But I mean, if, if you look at like the that G3 desktop, speed is in the same neighborhood. You know, the the RAM ceiling is, it's lower, but kind of in line, maybe if you're looking at professional versus consumer usage. And the hard drive is, you know, relatively in the same, same kind of bracket of storage space. And so this wasn't kind of like how we think of Apple now. Like it was a consumer product, but it was, it was not like basement level parts and basement level pricing, right? This was an expensive machine and for the time for a consumer machine even, I was less than the than the Power Max, but you got a real computer as opposed to something that was so stripped down that you'd have to upgrade it to use it or you would just be hamstrung. Yeah, comparing these specs to the G3 desktop that I used for many, many years, it's basically the same. They've basically done the consumerization of the entry level of their current generation of of hardware. So same same CPU, 233 megahertz. Uh, the same storage, four gigs. And so it was really just a repackaging. Although, of course, there were some things that were famously missing and some famous additions. So the famously missing would be the floppy drive. Yep. Any way that you had to move files before this computer didn't work anymore. Like it, it, it was... It was a very closed box unless you in, invested in... USB floppy drives, or of course, everybody remembers like zip disks and zip drives. Um, but what's interesting too is that that stuff wasn't out when this machine was announced. And there was a, there was a, a it was announced in, I think, in the late spring and it came out in the fall. 
And in that time period, some, you know, vendors came online and got some stuff made. And of course, they coded everything in blue plastic because that was the design at the time. We did a whole episode on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll link that in the in the notes. Uh, episode 23, all about all kinds of ugly things in blue plastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, There's a whole world of that stuff. I was looking through like old Mac worlds and like they have these big spreads of USB devices and everything is blue. And the worst thing is, of course, that none of it matches. Yeah. It's all matchy matchy clashing colors. Yeah. They, they, you know, they had, all they had was, I guess, like a picture in a magazine to match it by. But, um, so it, that was a huge deal. And even though, like, I didn't really experience that transition, I've talked to a lot of people who have. And, like, people, some people kind of scoffed at this machine when it was announced, saying, like, well, how do you get stuff in and out of it? And, you know, talking about Mac OS 8, like, it had, you, you could do file sharing and stuff, but it's nowhere near as robust as it would become even then. And SneakerNet was the way people moved files in offices and at schools and in universities and, and even at home. And so to have something that didn't accommodate for, you know, plugging in a disk, like that, that was a problem for a lot of people. And I think those people who made floppy drives made a lot of money at the beginning, but um, like, like how most of these things go, time made it better and, and people moved on. Yeah. I remember in this era, um, we said that we were in middle school and our school had a no backpacks policy, like carrying around your stuff during the day, which was kind of disastrous. Um, so everybody had those giant uh, five-star zipper binders. Yeah. And in the front of those, it had three dedicated pockets for floppy disks. And I remember that usually in there, I had one floppy disk and two zip disks like jammed in, like they weren't designed <laughs> to fit in there. But that w exactly that was how files got around, and the notion was now that okay, you're going to have to leverage that I in in iMac uh, if you're going to be transferring files. You might need to be doing it over the internet, and with most people still on dial-up, that was really not feasible for a whole lot of stuff. I mean, I would email myself back and forth like you know, ClarisWorks documents if I'm like writing an essay for school. Okay, it's only twenty k like that's going to be a perfectly fine email attachment, but anything graphic, audio, anything that was pushing upwards towards a megabyte was getting uh, getting to be too much for the infrastructure that we had to handle. Yeah, it was a, it was a big break. And, you know, Jobs, of course, praises USB or universal serial bus, as he calls it, I think, to make people feel more comfortable. Um, and, and all those virtues, you know, that, that, came true right uh, i think even a couple years into this people were were fine using usb devices and um i know by the time i ended up with one in front of me at the high school newspaper you know we had a file server and we had you know some zip drives and that was it was fine but i do think there was that transition there in 98 99 2000 where you know people really did have to like rethink their workflows especially you know if you had if you were at home and you were a single user, probably not a big deal. But if you had these in an office or in a school, it was something to think about. And I think it, um, you know, Apple does this, right? A lot about this iMac history gets recycled. Like, look at the MacBook today, right? It's the same kind of thing of like, I couldn't live on that machine. I need more than one port because if you look at my desk, I have 400 things plugged in. But maybe one day that won't be the case. And uh, it was Apple and Jobs like ramming the future down people's throats in a colorful computer. So, yeah, we talked about the, the USB devices that you need. 
of course, one of the USB, the USB peripherals that came with the iMac were the keyboard and mouse. And uh, we did a whole episode on, on keyboards. We haven't got around to mice. And of course, we should make at least brief mention of the famous hockey puck, hockey puck uh. mouse that uh, came with the original iMac. And uh, I said that my uh, first experiences with the iMac were uh, in using Brian's iMac in his in his bedroom in uh, in middle school and high school and basically not being able to put the cursor anywhere that I wanted to. And I think we even at that time had the version that was dimpled on the button so you would at least know which way to orient it when you were holding it uh, because the original version certainly did not. The, the original or pre-release version uh, off, was supposed to offer some additional features as well. Uh, that were highly touted by Phil Schiller himself. Looks like no other mouse we've ever seen before. You turn it on and it comes alive. There was supposed to be an LED in the mouse itself to, I don't know, what, tell you that it was plugged in? <laughs> no, it, like everything about this was was like, it looks cool. It's uh, it's what, it's form at the sake of functionality. Because uh, a fun little detail was that the this was a, a rollerball mouse, also a throwback, like, to the days where you had to take the ball out and like clean the rollers because they picked <laughs> out lint. But the ball that came in, certainly the original one, and I think still in the one that we got, uh, was two-tone. Like one hemisphere was white and one hemisphere was black for the pure purpose of like, it's the mouse itself is translucent. So as you're rolling around, you can just see the, the ball move. And uh, maybe they needed a light in there to make sure that the effect wasn't missed. <laughs> It, yeah, I think I think you're right. It's, it's just it's form over function. Like, and they do look good. And later on, when they introduced the five flavors, the keyboards and mice got themed to match. So I have like a tangerine mouse, you know, lime mouse, etc. And they all look good. Um, I, I actually plugged one in and tried using it a couple of days ago just to like, was it as bad as I remember it? And I can here to tell you <laughs> it is as bad as you remember it. Um <laughs> It's it's really bad, but uh, I think the most interesting thing about this first machine is the the mezzanine port. So if you look at a picture of the side of it, there's a plate, like a metal plate, and there were screws on either side. And there is a, if you unscrew it, there is a port back there. And there's only like one article on the entire internet I could find about this thing uh, over on Macworld. And it seems to be that this was left a leftover component from testing or development, and then Apple just put a plate over it. But of course, you know, people are curious, and someone pried that door off. And there were a couple of companies that made basically expansion cards. Like if you think about, you could slide in the side of a PowerBook for the iMac. There was one um, uh, called Thin Scuzzy that basically like lets you plug in Scuzzy stuff into the side of your iMac and. There's another one that had to do something with storage, but um, it just like it's such a weird little thing, and it went away very quickly. Like they revised the iMac, and that thing is gone. But it's um, it's funny to me that that, that shipped, and maybe something came up where they couldn't get rid of it. But uh, it's um, it, it kind of reminds me of the USB port on the back of the Apple TV, which like you can plug in and do stuff, but Apple really doesn't want you to. Yeah. Um, but it's just a funny little footnote to this original computer that has a strange little port on the side. If you take a screwdriver to it, you can plug this like one German made thing into it. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mentioned this to you when you shared your like uh, slideshow animated GIF of uh, every model, but like the, the ports, the IO on the iMac really looked unfinished until you got to the slot loading things where they actually like laid it out and put it on plastic that matched the case like there's this weird 
green stretched out honeycomb pattern or something on the original iMac. And yeah, and this this uh, mezzanine slot was like a total like byproduct of what feels like a very rushed uh, I.O. port interface. Well, again, Apple just prioritizing form and saying, this is the shape that we want this beautiful machine to be and uh, hack up, hack the circuit boards in any configuration that will get, you know, the ports somewhere to the outside of the machine and uh, everything that needs to face forward facing forward. And that was the kind of design. Of course, the design being translucent also showed off, uh, you know, the centerpiece of the iMac was its CRT display. And uh, I, I presume that's another reason that the mezzanine port was kind of quickly pushed to the side is that I remember in the days of CRT displays, televisions, monitors, all that, you were told like never, ever, ever, ever open up your monitor unless you absolutely know what you're doing because they contain these, the CRT monitors contain these really uh, high capacity capacitors that can hold a huge amount of charge. And if you accidentally discharge them, you could kill yourself. You could definitely get seriously hurt. Um, I had to uh, discharge an EMAC in Genius Training, and it was like the scariest thing I've ever done. So going in to get towards that mezzanine port is you know, cracking open the iMac and, and really exposing that CRT because you could see that it was right there. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't, you don't want to do that. Yeah. So they, they revved this thing very quickly. And the Revision B, it's, it's Bondi, it's, it looks the same. All they really did was, and this is a quote from Apple's documentation, hardware bug fixes. Like, if you want to complain about Facebook's, like, iOS app updates in the App Store, like, software bug fixes, hardware bug fixes is the worst thing I've ever read when it comes to computing. Like, what did you do inside, and why is my revision a garbage because of it? Right, because if you're updating an iOS app, at least when you click the button, you get the bug fixes. If you if you want the revision B bug fixes, you have to buy a whole new computer. Yeah, I've got a Rev A. Who knows what I'm missing? Um but they also updated the the graphics that went from four to six megabytes of VRAM, and that lets you do some additional stuff. But really, the same computer. I think if you had a Rev A and the Rev B came out, I think I think actually it was silent. It was only in like technical documentation, but I could be wrong. Yeah, you're like comparing serial numbers at this point to tell which one you're which one you're getting. Yeah, it's not it's not a showstopper if you bought a Revision A and like two months later Apple revved it. Like it's the same computer. So maybe that's the time to move on to just five, six months later, where the Bondi Blue iMac goes away permanently forever. <laughs> yep. Uh, because in January of 1999, Apple released the next major revision of the iMac line, the Rev-C, and it comes in colors. Five flavors, blueberry, strawberry, lime, tangerine, and grape. Yeah, the the colors are really great. And, and in that keynote, Steve, you know, talks about how people want to express themselves with color and with design. And he says, you know, I think we've done that. And he, um, there, there's a clip there where he's walking amongst these IMAX, which are like twirling on these pedestals. And he's like touching them all and like just saying something nice about them. Strawberry, it's delicious. And you can tell he's into some colors more than others. But, um, it's really great, and and having all five of them, like they are a lot of fun. And I think it's where the Bondi was really special because it was blue in a sea of beige. But the five flavors are are even more special because you got to pick what color you were in the sea of beige. And um, and you know, technically under under the skin, they're basically Revision B machines. They were a little bit faster. Um, they got a little faster again with the Revision D, but 
Um, it's really just uh, you get to pick your color and, uh, and and go from there. Yeah, and uh, you have here that they they got rid of the mezzanine slot, and they also got rid of the infrared receiver on the front side no. of the case. I know, because like what were this was you know way before front row and an Apple remote. Um, like was it for getting if you still had a Newton or an Emate, you could beam stuff to your iMac. Yeah, and there were some other I think PDAs that were using that, but it was very limited and. Um... I think someone, I don't remember the company, someone tried doing like a digital camera with it so you could import your photos, but IRDA was so slow. It was like, you you might as well just like, just, I don't know, like copy the bits by hand into ones and zeros. It's so slow. Yeah, like way slower than Bluetooth. And we know that even copying over Bluetooth is basically impractical. And if you're using Bluetooth audio, you know, the, the quality is low to make sure that all the bits get from point A to point B. Yeah, I will say real quick before we move on, uh, the blueberry color is is interesting. It is, in photos, you cannot really tell the difference between it and the Bondi. If you have two of them side by side, you can. It's a little bit brighter. And some of the chassis stuff inside is slightly different. Like the band around the CRT is white as opposed to beige. But they are very, very similar. And that's kind of a problem if you're looking at buying some of these things that people don't know what they have. And so a bunch of... Blueberry machines are listed Bondi and vice versa, and sometimes Indigo gets mixed in there, but those are obviously easier to spot. Um, but of course, the other four, Strawberry, Lime, Tangerine, and Grape, are all very different from anything else they, they shipped. And um, like I said, the keyboards and mouse, the plastic inserts and stuff were all a color to match. So if you you know bought a, a Strawberry iMac, you had a pink keyboard and mouse to go with it, which I just think is a really nice touch. And you know, this is a couple of years into Tim Cook being at Apple, uh, I like to think, and this may just be complete baloney, but I like to think that that sort of, the sort of like production ramp to make like we have to make five colors of mice and keyboard, like that was Apple flexing that muscle really for the first time. That now you know they did it with iPods and they did it with iPhones and MacBooks and everything else, but this was really the first time where Apple said you know we can make a single product and a bunch of different SKUs with different colors and like and we can ship them and we can you can order one and you get what you want like. It's kind of an impressive feat from the from the operation side of it, uh, kind of the way I think about it. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this today. Uh, like, what are if you wanted to like blow this out in inventory? You're essentially making the same machine and swapping out some pieces of colored plastic. What are all the pieces? And what I could think of were the two speaker grills, the little chiclet to open the CD tray, obviously the big shell, and then an apple on the top and an apple on the back. Yep, that uh, and the foot. So these things had four like hard feet with rubber stoppers, and then they had a plastic, plastic foot basically that you could flip up or down. It would tilt the iMac up a little bit. But yeah, that that's it. I mean, everything inside and even like around the ports. I guess the port cover door, which my lime is missing one. Um, I think that is even the same on all of them. So it's yeah, it's just it's really just a, a, a couple of pieces. Yeah, looking at going from Bondi to the five flavors. Uh... On the Rev A, Rev B, uh, the port door has a little blue accent, uh, but that would be like one step too far to have another color matching piece. So it, it's all just the the white uh, translucent base color. Yeah, I think that's probably why they switched. It was like, okay, like we've got to got to tone this down some. Eventually, later on in the line, they would uh, get rid of the port door because they were less ashamed of what was behind it. Yeah, we put them in their level this time and aligned with each other. Yeah, and maybe that's the last thing we can say about 
this revision of the iMac G3 is uh, another thing that I think, was it Ed? <laughs> You're like, mind blown, just realized this in 2016. But uh, so we've been talking about the port door, which has a little like thumb hole to open and close the port door. And Apple's all about, you know, like cord management. They're the, the There's like a similar hole on the back of the current iMacs and displays. And so I think uh, my family certainly, and I bet a lot of people threaded their cords through that like, thumb hole. But you're going to like kink the cords 90 degrees to get them through there, right? Yeah, because it's the ports are spread out around the entire area. Uh, but there were cutouts at the like the bottom hinge in the lower left and the lower right corner for your ports and like some to go forward, like for keyboard and mouse and others to go backwards, like your other peripherals. And it was a total mind blown moment when uh, me and my family realized like, oh, we're definitely doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I guess I'll, I, I'll take the transition into the next major revision of the iMac because uh, like I said, we got ours after uh, I finished middle school, which would have been the summer of 1999. And then in the fall of 1999, uh, like, arguably the biggest physical revision to the iMac G3. And uh, it's clearly like this is the iMac they wanted to make from the beginning, kind of like how the original MacBook Air had a bunch of compromises. And then like the second major revision of the MacBook Air, still the one that's out there today, is like that's the one that they wanted to make from the start. And it's clear like, this is the iMac they wanted to make from the start. Uh, there were so many different things. And I was like, man, we should have waited. Yeah, the one thing that I notice in these is, uh, Stephen, you've taken some really excellent, they're, they're almost like the, you know, media product photos from Apple, but you've, you photographed all of these iMacs that you've collected and uh, put together some image packages of them, including an animated one. And that's where you really notice this is that um, going to this revision of the iMac, there's a little like tuck and lift of the profile. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, like it, it's gone to the gym a little bit. <laughs> well, they, they did shave six pounds out of it. So so the big change, right, is that they went from a tray-loading optical drive to a slot-loading optical drive, which in of itself is not a big deal. But like you said, I, I agree with you. I think it is like this is the iMac they wanted to make. The whole thing is slightly smaller. You would never know it unless you had two of them or 13 of them. Or an animated GIF of them. Yeah, or an animated GIF of them. Um, but you can also, my favorite part about this is you can see through them. So much more. So all it, the shielding, and there was actually some electronics on that vertical plane that they got that they were able to bring horizontally at this time. And, and at the announcement, Steve Jobs pulls the same trick that he's done in all of the previous iMac uh, announcements, where he's like, "Come on, bring out the uh, mobile camera unit and come all the way around this and see just how amazing it looks from all angles." And he like waves his hand behind it. He's like, "Look, you can see all the way through." It. <laughs> he's very very excited about the the design that they they've brought here. Uh, one thing that you kind of glossed over, Stephen, um, was the slot loading CD drive. And it's like, oh, well, that's, you know, it's kind of just what they wanted from the beginning. Um, but I think that that was kind of special at the time, especially on a desktop computer. I mean, it wasn't like people had never seen a slot loading CD drive before. But I know at at that point, I think I had pretty much only seen them in car dashboards. And even then, people were kind of like, they had qualms about just like letting the disc go. I remember using one for the first couple of times. And what I was always worried about is like, well, what happens if I can't get it out? Because the tray one they actually was like a paperclip hole and you command can command shift one, command shift one. Yeah. <laughs> Hit it with a hammer until it comes out. <laughs> but um yeah, it took a little bit of a leap of faith, I guess, to make sure that that hardware worked. On the front too, they made a change where the previous ones, 
these things had two headphone jacks because I think the idea, or at least where I used this, was in school. So you have two students listening on separate headphones to the same content. And before this, those two headphone ports were next to the power button. So if you imagine just a kid like rooting around trying to get his headphone port in or like grabbing it, pulling it out, he put the machine to sleep. And so they moved that uh, mercifully to the other speaker away from the power button. <laughs> and that's just, that's one of those things like I, I, I can just imagine that Apple got feedback on that from teachers of saying like this, like why is the power button here? Please move it. And so there's lots of little little details when they when they change the to the uh, to the slot loading. One of the big ones that may not be immediately um, obvious is on the back of the machine. Before this, there was actually a secondary handle that kind of flipped out, so you could get it from the top handle and the bottom handle. Top handle changed on this; they integrated the vents because remember this is a Steve Jobs computer, so there are no fans in the iMac G3. It is cooling by physics. And so they changed the way the the grill and the handle were put together. I I, I like this design better. Um, but there's also a expansion door on the back, as well as kind of the kind of like the back bottom side. So you could open those things, and you could get to RAM. You could put an airport card in later, and even later you could pop that off. And there was a VGA port back there. So they're adding expansion and new features to the iMac while keeping the design. You know, if you don't have any of that stuff plugged in. Like the VGA door, you could swap it out with a part that left the VGA port exposed all the time. But if you didn't need that, then you could just cover it up. So it's it's still like keeping this thing like clean and tight and neat. But if you need this other stuff, you know, there's now kind of ways into the machine that, that weren't here before this. And that feature of the the expansion door is barely still with us on just a couple just a couple iMac models today. Yeah, yeah it's crazy pants. Um, this is where I need to confess something. To, to you guys and to the listeners. And someone called me on this on Twitter when I put that GIF up, and they they weren't wrong. Um, it's incorrect for me to say that I have every color of every like permutation of iMac because the when they went from the trailer to the slot load, like grape and you know these these five flavor colors did change slightly because they the classic's a little bit thinner, you can see through them better. I don't have those. Like all my five flavors are tray load. No, you, you, you can't collect the shiny Pokemon. You'll go insane. Yeah, uh, my family would really be upset with me. And um, so I don't have those, but there, there are those, those like subtle differences. And, um, and this is too where they, for the first time, they split the line where there's not just one model of iMac for sale where they're sort of good, better, best, right? Yeah, still, still breaking away from, from the past of, of Macintosh naming with model numbers. They're still... We get letters here, but there are definitely no uh, no numbers. You get your your gradations of the product line, and then beyond that, you're into you know, the realm of build to order features as opposed to uh, different models, which maybe you know maybe would have been like the difference between oh it's the fifty four twenty and that's the fifty four sixty a few years prior. So the cheapest, the good model was just available in the blue blueberry, and then the five flavors the middle tier were uh the dv for digital video there are some cool things like firewire and that vga out uh in the special hector and then the top level was the dvse special edition and this was in a new flavor well you shouldn't need it but graphite <laughs> kids donate graphite <laughs> yeah and uh this would be a good time to plug your recent column at iMore that was really great. A look at every special edition 
uh, Apple branded product because this was one of the the early ones. I cannot believe they accepted that pitch. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's it's you have blueberry at the bottom, then you have the five flavors in the middle and the graphite on top. And so at this point forward, there are some things that stay the same. So DV equals Firewire digital video. They came with iMovie, I think install, but maybe on the disc in the box. But iMovie was involved. Of course, you're talking about a 10 gig hard drive, so you're like shuttling data around all the time. But you have Firewire, so you can plug in your camera. And it's really the beginning of Apple putting that digital hub together and saying, hey, if you buy this machine, it allows you to create things. And to do that in a machine that cost, you know, 1200 bucks or something was a big deal. And, um, and the DV Special Edition, besides coming in graphite, which is super cool looking if you've never seen one, uh, the only difference between it and the DV was an extra three gigs of hard drive space. Um, I think maybe a slightly faster CPU, but but not really. But that's that's kind of the gradation Apple's using. And as we see as we go into the next revision, the bottom one is the old DV, DV Plus, which comes next is the old DV Special Edition. Like they just kind of bump them down the line. Oh, the rollback strategy begins. Yeah, it's like what they do with the iPhones today. Like that's the easiest thing to compare it to, where I could buy a 6S or an old 6 or until a couple weeks ago, an older 5S. So Apple's experimenting with this stuff as they get into 1999 and 2000, and um, that's this is where the family tree gets a little a little nutty uh, after after this round. Yeah, one thing to point out here is I, I I think this is the way that it went in terms of the introduction of this model. I know that um, when Bondi Gate happened <laughs> uh, a little while ago, I went and wound up watching a whole bunch of iMac product and introduction videos at double speed on YouTube, trying to figure out if someone ever actually said Bondi on stage. Um, and I couldn't find anything. So it was all of us just reading that word and getting it wrong. Um, but in this keynote presentation where the iMac line becomes split up, the way that that's done is with Steve Jobs patented one more thing. And so the DV was the one more thing. And then the DV special edition was even one more thing. And we think of the, the one more thing as being kind of sacred, always gets a great reaction. And by the time the people who are in that introduction two hours in get to the DV special edition, that's one more thing. And Jobs kind of doesn't like nail the, oh, one more thing. And they're like not having it. Yeah. One of the last things I want to say about this big hardware revision is the the two itty bitty speakers on the front of the machine were upgraded and now like branded as these are these are Harman Kardon speakers and this was one of the biggest things that I was like why didn't we wait and get this <laughs> and because I'm a sucker for marketing like for all I know it probably sounds the same especially when you're listening to like 64 kilobit mp3s on the machine um but uh, it wasn't just that the speakers on their own were upgraded, but that Apple, well, Apple in conjunction with Harman Kardon released the iSub, which was like calibrated to work with the two speakers on this machine. And of course, this is the like giant transparent glass blowfish subwoofer that you can still get with the sound sticks. And the idea of that is what like blew my mind. Like, oh my God, this is a computer that has like good enough speakers in it that you can buy a subwoofer and the subwoofer looks just as cool as the computer. And like, I don't have to pump the the audio through like 
my boom box that is also on my desk through an aux cable. And like, uh, that was just like a, a weird selling point for me. That was probably like a throwaway or, you know, just a single bullet, but I was fixated on like, Oh man, this is the computer. Uh, like simultaneously as we are all discovering Napster for Mac and MP3s and having your music on your computer instead of on CDs, like, and this is a computer that has good speakers. But I think one of the things that that speaks to is that it's almost two years in to the iMac. And we mentioned that there was that gold rush of blue colored plastic stuff that looked really garbagey. But it took this long for Apple to find one other company that just kind of got it in terms of the design, someone that they could partner with and then sell these things next to each other and say, look, we kind of defined this aesthetic. And it's a good one, and it's not just for making all-in-one computers. You can extend this, and Harman Kardon was was able to do that. And those speakers, they still look good today. Oh yeah, and they um and they sound good. The Sage that I had at the beginning, uh, we used to use in our workshop as like an iTunes box, just like remote into it and play music because they do sound good. And uh, Jobs makes a big deal that that you can see them because the bottom part of the case is more translucent, and they're they're. Uh, spherical and you know apple actually kind of reused that design the technology in some of the later external speakers with the imac g4 and the cube and uh, and some of those machines so it's it's a beginning of like a multi-year like affair between the two companies and um i think it's you know apple pushing that digital hub like you're going to use this for itunes you just don't know it yet uh you're going to use it to edit your movies you know you're going to do all this stuff this machine is going to become more important to you from a media perspective so in July 2000, so they're keeping up this pace, right? We go from October 1999 to July 2000. Uh, we get the summer 2000 machines. And this is the most complicated. There's four individual models at this point. Uh, they're the first iMac to require OS 9. So if you uh, were waiting for the new version of Sherlock, this is the computer you wanted. <laughs> and uh, it, it also marks... The cheapest uh, an iMac, or really, I think a Mac, maybe ever had gotten. Yeah, this is the one price in our outline that has an exclamation point after it. Seven hundred ninety-nine dollars. Yeah, and I've I've gone through, and unless there were some price drops that I missed, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to see that. You can you can figure out what the initial selling price of a lot of Macs were, but as far as I can tell, this is the cheapest Mac ever apart from the mac mini right which doesn't come with peripherals and a monitor monitor keyboard anything so um this was a really impressive price point i mean obviously inflation carries things ever forward but uh it's kind of interesting to see gee will will apple ever hit a price point like this again are they even interested in hitting a price point like this again except with maybe something like an iPad. Yeah, and so 800 bucks got you a 7-gig hard drive. So there's some value engineering going on here. It lacked not only an airport card, but actually I've read mixed things, but I believe that it lacked the slot to put an airport card into, which is a little a little mean. Um, and, of course, no Firewire, CD-ROM drive instead of DVD-ROM. Probably no burner in that either. Yeah, yep, just uh, you're reading only. And it came in Indigo, which kind of replaces blueberry at this point as sort of like the low end default like color like almost every little like <laughs> specific iMac model after this you can get an indigo which is really nice like dark blue but 799 bucks is a big deal and i think this machine is 
probably, you know, I probably did well in education at that price point, but um, it was for sale to the general market. You could, you could order one of these from Apple and uh, spend 800 bucks and get yourself an iMac. Yeah, I think at this point uh, where Indigo became the kind of standard color, uh, the next level up, the iMac DV, was probably the one that my grandpa got because I remember that it did have FireWire uh, because he had a uh, analog to digital converter box and hooked it up to VCR because he had recorded all kinds of stuff on his VCR that he wanted to like preserve and cut clips out of. Uh, and that was a major use of that machine that was a Indigo iMac. And I remember we had that. Uh, so we said this was the first iMac to require OS 9. And then when OS 10 came around, um, I guess we had plenty of space on that like 10 gigabyte hard drive uh, to be able to uh, partition it and, or maybe we didn't even have to partition it and uh, dual boot OS 9 because he wasn't going to learn OS 10 at that point. Uh, but I was kind of moving on and wanted to use OS 10 for most things. Um, and it, it worked fairly well that way. I mean, you know, you just had to take a minute or two to to boot from one to the other. Pick which one you want. Yeah, he would sometimes come by and be like, oh, can I use the computer for a... Oh, Aqua. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in his defense, OS 9 was probably way faster at that point. Yeah, especially on G3. So so that machine came in Indigo or Ruby. The DV Plus, which is a step above it again. The only difference between these machines, speed, hard drive space. Uh, you got DVD-ROM at some point. Uh, but the DV Plus came in Indigo and Ruby, like the one before it, and then they added Sage. It was the first time that Sage comes in. There's a really great ad with Kermit the Frog uh, with the Sage iMac that I don't even know. I, I know I have a copy of it. If it's on YouTube, we can make that happen. But um, there's a great little ad uh, with Kermit talking about how it's not easy being green. And then all the way at the top at a whopping fourteen ninety nine, so effectively t- almost twice as much, as the base iMac is the iMac uh, DV Special Edition Summer 2000. It's a wordy name. Uh, 30 gigabyte hard drive and then graphite and snow. So graphite is still being reserved for the special edition status. And then they add snow to it as well, which um, snow is one that I had not seen before I set out on this. And it's actually really beautiful. It's, it's not very transparent. They've, they've kind of increased or decrease the opacity. I never know which way <laughs> the word works. Um, so you can kind of only see through it. If there's a light behind it, but it's, it's just a white, like it, not dissimilar from the EMAC, of course, but uh, just a really nice looking machine. And, uh, and that was reserved at that, at that, that high price point, the top of the line for, uh, for the year 2000. Yeah. And this is kind of because of the, the color palette that they've chosen not only just breaking the line into these different named uh, sub-product lines, but kind of taking the iMac and saying some of these iMacs are more pro and some are more consumer. And you know, the more consumer ones have fun colors and the more pro ones have pro colors, huh. just like black and white. I had not thought about that way, but I think, I think that's definitely right. And even when you compare all of the colors in this lineup to the previous ones, they all are kind of like more professional versions of their counterparts, like the deeper blue and red and the more like foresty green versus like all the other ones were, were candy. Right. Yeah. You don't want to walk into a doctor's office and see like a tangerine iMac sitting on the desk, but you know, a Sage one, you're going to feel a little bit better. 
So maybe we should head to the next uh, generation where the colors go totally off the rails and cease becoming colors. Oh my god. So uh, early 2001 um, this is the first time it's important to note that all iMacs have Firewire so the DV designation goes away because there are no non-DV models. Everything is Firewire now. Everything is VGA out. Um, the price goes back up to eight ninety nine. Speed's a little bit better, but we we have to talk about these um, these patterns, these designs. They're not colors; they're molded into the case. So crazy, yeah. So blue Dalmatian and flower power they are they are a thing. Gentlemen. And those are the names. Those are the real names. Yeah. Out of all these IMAX, they've they've, in my opinion. They have aged the least well. And it's kind of obvious to see why if you look at at pictures of them. But it really was Apple, I, I guess, like saying, you know, we can do whatever we want to with these things, right? And um, you could still go buy an Indigo, uh, thankfully, uh, or you could go buy a Graphite. Uh, Indigo and Graphite survived this generation. Um, but uh, it is just... Um, it's very odd, and there's lots of little oddities about these machines. So they're not transparent; you can't see into them really. You can, if you shine a light through them, you can see it, but not, but not really. And they are the only two where the Apple, the embedded Apple logo. So there's one at the top and one on the back. Uh, those match on all the other eleven. So like the Ruby one, it's got a Ruby Apple, and they all the same color. Uh, blue Dalmatian and Flower Power use a, a like a, a really pretty like baby blue, and then a little bit of a darker blue. And on the blue dimension and flower power, they're opposite. So like the top one is light blue and the back one is dark blue on one of them. And then it's reversed on the second one. So it's, they're not even using the same Apple logo on the top and the back. It's just a, a really odd, that detail I totally escaped me until I had them here. But it's like Apple's just kind of like screwing with the design at this point. And I, I don't really know why, like at least to my taste, that they're not particularly good looking, but they are unique. They are special. The blue Dalmatian is all right. It's it's kind of a basic pattern. It's in the blue family that, you know, the iMac has traditionally been, been considered blue. The flower power, I don't really know what the in- inspiration here was. I've, I've said my uncharitable view of what flower power looks like, especially from a distance. It looks like something that you left in the back of a fridge for too long. Um, you have to get really close to discern that there are kind of symmetrical flower designs and they're so overlaid with each other that you just get this kind of uh pinky awful color you know probably the the ugliest thing that apple had designed prior to this was that uh that tab color in at ease (laughs) (laughs) were these imax uh the ones that that had the slogan rip mix burn yeah it it may be the ones right before but it's definitely in that era where you could you know itunes was in its heyday right and you could go buy a cd and rip it and stick it on your ipod which used firewire um, this is all right in that same that same time period, if not the exact machines. Because these kind of also look like someone let the iTunes visualizer uh, design the case. So maybe it was all <laughs> trying to be tied together. Probably not, because it was it was very specific. You have this uh, note here in the show notes that I didn't know that it took eighteen months to perfect these designs to like work on the the like molding them into the case and everything. Yeah, I came across that. I couldn't find a second source but um it seems like it was very intensive because if you run your hand over them all the imax are smooth some of them have a little texture to them but these feel markedly different because this is it's not like they're bumpy it's not like you can tell like 
run your finger around the ridge of one of the flowers, but you can tell the plastic is different and it's not a vinyl. It's not like, you know, like you see like a, a van, like wrapped in like a subway logo. Like it is not that <laughs> it is, it is very different from that. And it's, um, clearly it took a long time according to this, this one uh, interview I saw, but uh, they're unique. And they, they, <laughs> the, the sad part to me is they stick around longer than like Ruby and Sage do. Ruby and Sage are locked to one generation, but, um, which is a shame because they're really beautiful. But, you know, this is like, maybe this is like Steve Jobs having no one tell him no. Like, you know, I, I just know that Steve Jobs loved Flower Power. Like, you just, you can just see it when he announces it. Um, it just seems like something right up his alley. And uh, I, I don't, I, I, I don't buy into that. <laughs> what can you do? We can move on to the uh, the final generation of IMAX is what we can do. Yeah, so we're now in 2001. Uh, no names at this point. It's just you pick your speed and you pick your color. So there's indigo and snow and the graphite and snow. Um, you can get a graphite or snow for 14.99 with a 700 megahertz G3 is the best spec IMAX G3 ever. Yeah, specs have come a long way here. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, you're talking about a 233 in 1998, 2001, you know, 700 megahertz. And this G3 is a better G3 than they had before. We skipped over. They did some L2 cache stuff that no one cares about. <laughs> yeah, or 600 megahertz for the same price as the original iMac and and go from 4 gig to 40 gig hard drive. So, I mean, 10x on storage. I mean, that's that's, you know, that's pretty much outpacing Moore's law and everything. Um, these machines are, were, were really, uh, you know, this generation moved quickly. It did. And they, they brought back the 799 price point for a little while. And what I didn't know until, until looking into this is that the G, the G3 remained on sale after the iMac G4 was announced and put on sale. And so the G4 was doing its thing and there was a, uh, basically a snow, iMac G3 that survived all the way until March of 2003. That's your uh, free iPhone 4. But what blows my mind about that is think about how close that was to the Intel transition, where you can still go buy a G3. It's only a couple years past this, really. And you can go in and buy an iMac G3 in the Apple Store. It They were hitting a price point. I think it was there for education. Like, Well, and the eMac stuck around for way too long right <laughs> and, and that's really what replaced the snow imac kind of not ex exactly the same price point but yeah but it sort of like intellectually the emac just slides right in here um especially like weight wise but that's you know that's it's a long and and complicated road but in there apple's doing a lot of things like we talked about that they do now they were they were experimenting with like what if we gave each good better best a name and then they got rid of that because I think it was I think it was genuinely confusing. It was confusing now, you know, years later trying to unravel it all. Um, but I think it was confusing to the customers wanting to say, "I want an iMac." Well, do you want the DV or DV Plus? Like, I, I have no idea. Like, you were literally just saying letters to me. Like, I don't know what you're saying. And so I think they learned. And by the time 2000 2001 rolled around, it's hey, it's like it is now. Like, you go buy a MacBook Air. And it's not MacBook Air level one, level two, level three. You just pick your speed and your other specs and you get a MacBook Air, right? There's no designation there. And I think that Apple learned that lesson here with this computer. Or even in that weird uh, like Ruby Sage year where it's like, I want the green one. Well, the green one only comes at like the higher spec version. So you're going to pay more just to have the green one. 
almost like the black MacBook. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if, if you wanted that graphite, you were right. It was reserved for people who, you know, maybe needed one in a more professional environment. And the side effect was that it was graphite. Yeah, one of the interesting things here is just the the churn in the models and how quickly things got revised. I mean, the the one that blows my mind the most is that the original Bondi iMac only lasted five six months, and that and then it was gone. Um, but that wasn't an aberration. That was how Apple was developing these and how they were turning them over, Rev C, Rev D, and then just getting to labeling them by season and year that they came out. Yeah, you think about uh, certain models in the Apple lineup today, and like we're we're almost hoping for uh, once a year. Like that's the best case scenario. It's all, it's a given for some, and then there are others like the Mac Mini or the Mac Pro, where it's like, well, we'll, we'll wait, we'll wait a couple of years, and this is like you could see one more than once a year, an update. But it was going at a kind of a different strategy because uh, it was looking at not only the specs, but also the style. And they knew that the specs would be a gradual ramp as opposed to like with the iPhones now where you figure, okay, every two years we're going to have like a major new processor architecture in the iPhone. And I think that this would be something that would be kind of interesting. I don't know, you know, I clearly do not run strategy at Apple. But people have been talking recently about like, okay, as the iPhone becomes a mature product, is there the need for an annual release? And people say, well, oh my gosh, what if Apple doesn't release a phone every year? They're going to get smoked in the market. Wall Street will hate it. Android will come in and and eat their lunch. But what if you said, well, no, we're going to have like big milestones every two years the way that we have before, but take like two years, 24 months and divide it into three. And like every eight months, we're just going to like... You're going to get uh, slightly tweaked, uh, slightly tweaked iPhones in all brand new colors, and like if they did that every eight months, especially for you know the mass consumer market that uh, that they've gained with the iPhone. I mean, you know, a billion billion iOS devices, as opposed to the tiny slice of consumer market that they were getting with the the iMac. You know, there's there's kind of a method to the madness here of of just constantly pushing, uh, especially when you're looking at those external factors that are more important to many consumers. And I think, too, a big part of that strategy was Apple needed to onboard new customers rapidly. I mean, Apple is really small at this point. They've been through the worst of it. Uh, At some of these early keynotes, they're like, hey, we didn't lose a billion dollars last quarter. Yay (laughs) for us. Like, it really was bad. And so I think that doing these constant iterations of, hey, even if it really is the last iMac just remixed a little bit. Let's put new new colors on it. Um, we'll get rid of that that hockey puck mouse at some point. <laughs> that that I think brought people in. That if you were ever thinking about an iMac, it was always in the news, right? There's always new ones. And if you're sensitive to, I don't want to buy something because it's going to be outdated. Well, you know, every like every six months, every nine months, there's a new iMac and. Uh, you can, you know, jump in on that cycle really frequently. Um, and the flip side is the technology didn't really move that quickly, especially like revisions A through D, that you didn't feel burned if you bought one and all of a sudden there's a new one. Like they walked that line really well, I think. And it was just a testament to, 
I think Apple understanding their customer that, um, you know, people, the consumers in particular really care about things like the case color that, you know, if, if you're really into blue, you're really going to like this new indigo. And that is really important to a large set of people, you know, as nerds, I think it's easy for us to sort of turn our noses up at that, but this is this this is the formula they were perfecting this formula that they reused in the iPod Nano and the iPod Mini before it, right? It's the same principle. It's a lot of fast iteration, and you get to pick your color. You get to express yourself through your purchase, and this is the proving ground for all of that stuff that Apple still does today. Absolutely. I mean, we just saw that with the latest revision to the MacBook, where they added the rose gold finish, as they call it now. It's not 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 just a color. Color is, uh, you know, that's not fancy enough. It's the finish, um, but but they added that color, and the reaction to that broke down into basically three camps. There was the consumer camp, people who thought, "Hey, that looks cool. I would really like to have one of those." There was the Apple is doomed, and this is a terrible, sucky revision, and uh, they should have never done this in the first place. And then there were those of us who have been tracking this all along and try to get this historical perspective who go, well, this was kind of a nice like mid-cycle rev. And uh, I think uh, Jason Snell just published a review, like like a sat down thoughtful review instead of like hot takes on, on that revision and says, yeah, like they upped the specs. It looks pretty much the same. They gave They gave a little something extra to the people who aren't carefully monitoring the specs and they're moving forward. Same kind of same kind of model. I think I think I think that's absolutely right. I think that's why this machine is important historically is that so much of what Apple's playbook is now, um, they were figuring all that out in this in this machine and in, in these for these years. And what's really astounding to me when you guys put in the show notes was they did this without Apple stores. The Apple store didn't open until two thousand one, and even then you had to live in one of about six towns to being one. So, you know, people who bought these things either bought them online, and that became increasingly important, but I think that was very novel at the beginning. But people bought them at CompUSAs and Sears and like all these like non Apple environments. You got the MacMole catalog in the mail and you, you called up the, uh, the clip art lady who was in the corner of every page. And that was, that was actually literally how we ordered that, that Indigo iMac was from MacMole. I actually remember sitting in my grandparents' house, like with like we had circled in the catalog, and we called them and we said, "Send this to this address." It's crazy. It seems so wild now, but it, they did this without without all that retail support that they have now, and um, that's impressive too. That they sold as many as they did, and they supported them as well as they did, um, and out in a very different environment. Yeah, thinking about that, I kind of imagined the the alternate universe where Apple retail existed a little bit earlier and just trying to imagine what an Apple store would look like at launch of say like the five flavors IMAX. Yeah. It'd be very colorful. And, and just how, just like the way that they would lay that out in the way that matches their marketing material and, and what we know now as the way an Apple store operates. And, uh, you know, that seems like a very powerful image, but it was one that that just didn't exist. So I think that brings it to the end of the iMac G3 cycle. Just to kind of wrap up where it went from there, uh, you know, the next step was the iMac G4. 
And this was the big design shift finally away from CRT Max. So the iMac G4, my family did have one of these, um, often uh, endearingly known as the eye lamp. Yeah. Um, you know, get away from that CRT as being the central feature. Now we can have a flat panel display as the central feature. What do you do with that? Well, you put it on an articulating arm, which, you know, to this day, I kind of wish that I had sometimes, you know, you know some people will mount their, uh, mount their entire iMac on like a visa mount arm, uh, to, to get that same kind of functionality that, that came to the iMac with the iMac G4. And then the rest of the product line, uh, also transitioned to the G4. You have the G4 towers, the G4 cube, they adopted, you know, they, they were pro and they adopted that graphite color palette, uh, going away from the, the blueberry Mickey Mouse G3 tower. <laughs> and that was the the way forward was with these flat panel displays also uh releasing uh the uh the cinema displays that would be flat panels to go with your other desktop Macs. Yeah, the the whole this whole thing we've been talking about, these colors in the design were really possible because of the CRT and it was I guess Johnny Ive and his team saying, you know what, we might as well just embrace this and and like show it off in a way that doesn't hide the fact that we're, you know, stuck with this technology for a little while longer. Yeah. And there were other things that were pointing towards the, uh, this, the move away from CRT, the 20th anniversary Macintosh predated the move to LCD flat panel displays, uh, but had kind it kind of resembles what the iMac eventually became with the hemisphere base and the separate articulating arm for the display, although uh, kind of sitting next to each other on the desk, almost even a little bit more like like the cube plus uh, plus a cinema display or the sub that Brian lusted after so badly. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's a big it's a big shift to the G four and um. But the way they approach it is like these later G3s where it's like there's not an iMac G4 DV. Like they're all the same and you just pick a speed and eventually a screen size. And I think there were some final things we wanted to talk about and uh, regarding the iMac G3's larger impact on uh, pop culture, consumer electronics culture, and so on. Yeah, so of course there were uh, there were the copycats that came out shortly after the iMac. Uh, it and it, it happens with pretty much every Apple product these days. They spend years and years really refining their design and then putting something out to the world. And other manufacturers go, oh, well, if we just kind of make it look like that, uh, we'll really have everything that they do, right? Not that easy. And uh, the famous one, uh, I think we mentioned this perhaps uh, in an earlier episode, was the E-Machines all-in-one Windows PC that sold for something like $400. Uh, that they slapped some uh, some blue plastic panels on the side, and basically, you know, they Apple's argument was they were just trying to fool people into thinking, oh, well, this is like an iMac, and getting them to buy it instead. There was a big lawsuit there that goes into weird parts of IP law uh, involving trade dress, uh, so you can't like copyright the design of the machine, and they hadn't actually infringed on any of Apple's patents, but uh, there was this additional recourse for them uh to say well you're really really just trying to fool people <laughs> the the wikipedia picture of this thing is like it's like a bizarro world imac it's got like hard lines that's not good yeah the mouse is probably better though <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but you have to plug it into the right serial port. Like, is it purple or is it green? Yeah, and of course, I mean, you guys covered it really well uh, in your previous episode, but this whole design language, like, sums up so much of the late 90s. Like, you could go buy an alarm clock that was translucent colored plastic. I mean, it was this set, like, the like this defined consumer electronic design for several years. And um, I don't think Apple does that as much today they still do it in the consumer space or in the technology space but like i'm not you know i just had to replace um like a small appliance in our kitchen and it isn't like gleaming white plastic with like aluminum right like that not not everyone follows this as closely as they did but i think the imac was so different and instantly just so attractive that everybody was just drawn to it yeah well and apple sold it as kind of the centerpiece of your future home you know, it was your digital hub and the future was digital. Everything in your home was going to be digital. And so it made sense that everybody wanted to orbit around that. Whereas uh, today, yeah, we've got computers everywhere. We've got magic pocket computers. We've got computers on our desks. We've got computers in our backpacks. And so they just blend in and you can, thankfully, companies can design in their own right. And of course, there were also the uh, the fictional copycats. Um, one of my favorites uh, is in the comic strip Foxtrot. Uh, there's a iMac-like computer that is called the iFruit, uh, which looks like uh, it looks like a pear. It even has a leaf on the top, but it's a giant CRT monitor. It kind of looks like if you took an uh, took one of the CRT iMacs and uh, just turned it like face down <laughs> with the screen facing down. That's the design of it. But you know, came in all of the uh, the the fruit colors and the the running gag in 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 the strip is that Jason the son is like super nerd and uh, the computer is almost too friendly for him and his mom always wants to hug it <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, Bill Amond was uh, who's the uh, creator of Foxtrot was like a long time Mac user um, I remember getting in trouble in school for playing uh, hacked versions of games that he created uh, he took a uh, version of joust for for the classic mac and replaced all the resources in ResEdit to make slugman the video game uh which we <laughs> which was circulating on many floppy disks uh in our elementary school and i think the uh the ifruit in foxtrot like kept pace with apple's imac designs like they got the flat panel ifruit g4 and then the like aluminum back to the computer electronics or behind the glass ifruit it's a, it's a heck of a running joke. Anything else before we wrap up these uh, delicious fruit flavored iMacs? I think that about covers it. Well, we think that you have about covered them, <laughs> Stephen. So uh, one thing that we'll have in the show notes is I know you've put a uh, sort of a central hub over on 512 Pixels where you're collecting all of the things that you've done uh, with uh, this amazing physical collection that you've you've gotten into your office. Um, much to the dismay of your family, <laughs> <laughs> including, I think, your brother who was threatening them with a knife today. Yeah, we share an office and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> so. Well, thank you for you know sharing this with us. And uh, I know that you said that uh, you were happy to talk to us because uh, some of your co-hosts at Relay kind of glaze over when you start talking about how much VRAM was in uh, a particular revision of G3 iMac and uh, <laughs> we enjoy it and we hope, we hope our listeners did as well. Yeah, I won't, I won't say who, but Federico does. <laughs>
he's all iPad. I, I understand. He's he he he's the future man here. You know, twenty years from now, when we're when we're doing the the comprehensive history of the iPad, uh, he'll be the one who's explaining it all to us. <laughs> he's your man for the job. Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode. We're going to link to all that stuff uh, on our website at simplebeep.com. All of our episodes are at simplebeep.com slash episodes. Any feedback for us, uh, you can send it through the website or find us over on Twitter. The show account is at simple underscore beep. You can find each of us individually on Twitter as well. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And Stephen? I'm at ISMH. All right. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.